Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light, and following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. We are starting a John series that will take us through Easter. Uh, we're, we're starting uh, actually in John chapter 20 uh, because he gives a little purpose statement. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, we, uh, I want to take some time to talk about some of the cultural, historical, textual background uh, for both who John is and this book. And here's what I realized this week that uh, while I was uh, preparing the message and kind of reading some of this uh, background stuff, um, you don't care about this. And, and, you know, like no shame or anything, a lot of guilt, but no shame. Uh, you, you don't care about the cultural background and the historical data. Most of you don't care much. Let's just put it that way. And, and that's fine. I'm doing it anyway. And I'm doing it because of this. Um, when all we know about our faith and all we know about something like the Gospel of John is whatever like distillation we have made from the text itself down to some principle that we find to be a universal principle and then the application of that principle for our lives, um, when that is our only kind of engagement with the text is just, you know, I don't want to know the background, I don't need the theology, I don't know all the deep stuff, I don't need to know the Greek, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Give me the idea. Tell me how to apply that to my life. That's not bad. It's just shallow, right? And it's fragile in the end. Because then here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a principle and you're going to learn how to apply it to your life. And you're going to apply it to your life once. And guess what? It won't work. Because for who knows why, it won't work this one time because somebody else is an idiot or whatever. And this one idea won't work in your life. And then you go, oh, well, it doesn't work. So it must be wrong rather than having a kind of robust idea of what's happening in the text and where it comes from and why it's there and what John's talking about and who he's talking to and, and an understanding theologically of how these things play out in real life so that when you apply that truth as you should and it doesn't work, you go, oh, I wonder why. Let's go back. Let's figure it out. Let's think about it. Let's see what else is going on in this situation and in the text. So it, it deepens our faith in really significant ways. Okay, so I was out of town this week at a conference retreat thing, and there was a guy talking about how churches can engage with social media and digital media and all these kinds of things. And the reality is, most of what's written on social media is written at about a fifth grade level, right? We, we read 11-year-olds' words. And, uh, and, and that's fine, uh, except that it makes you dumber and um, largely unable or unwilling to read hard text which is problematic in a number of ways, but for Christians, it's especially problematic because our faith is founded on a hard text. So here's what happens. We, you know, in January, we go, okay, I'm gonna read the Bible this year. It's one of my, you know, New Year's resolutions. I'm really gonna get into the scriptures. We open John 1 and it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created through him and by him and all, all of this. And we read, we, got, we get about three verses in and we're like, huh? I don't understand any of this, close that up and move on. We have no ability to actually engage a hard text, wrestle with it, try to tease it apart, figure out what it says. And the reality is that our Bible is like the newest parts are, are almost 2,000 years old. 
and the oldest parts are 5,000 years old. They're from the Middle East. They're written in other languages, translated into ours. This is not an easy text. You can't just open it up like Harry Potter and be like, oh, I get it. Hermione's the smart one, right? Like, my kids are into that right now. Ah, I'm into that right now. Okay, I'll own it. So, so this becomes like a real problem when we can't engage the text at, at a significant level. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some background on John. I want to give you some background on the Gospel of John. And I would encourage you to write it down and think about it and try to figure out how this information about John might inform the way in which we listen to this sermon series for the next couple of months. Cool? Either way, that's what we're doing. All right. John... Uh, John the gospel writer is sometimes known as John the evangelist, uh, John the apostle, the, the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. He was the son of a Palestinian fisherman named Zebedee. He has a brother named James who is also one of Jesus' disciples. John was possibly, and I can't know for sure, but say probably one of John the Baptist's disciples who John the Baptist then pointed to Jesus and they went and followed him, which we'll see uh, in the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, he was given a nickname. He and his brother were given a nickname by Jesus, and the nickname was the Sons of Thunder, which is so rad, right? Like, it's one thing to be given the Sons of Thunder nickname by, like, Peter and Matthew or whatever, but for Jesus to look at you and be like, you guys, you're the Sons of Thunder. Like, the one who invented thunder, like, that's, that's pretty rad. One of my favorite stories about James and John, the sons of thunder, and this may be where they got their nickname, uh, comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 53 to 56. Um, Jesus and his disciples have been kind of roaming the countryside. They come on to this uh, Samaritan village, and the Samaritans want no part of them. They're Jews. They're headed to Jerusalem. They want no part of it, so they don't let them stay there. So it says this. It says, but the people there did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw that, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Which I just wish I could have been there to see the look on Jesus' face in that moment. Like, what? Like, and what about the thing we've been doing? Dude, this is Mark 9. Have you not figured this out by now? Like, how, how have you not figured out that we're not in the, like, casting down fire from heaven kind of game? Like, that's not our deal. And so it just says, he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Which is like, <laughs> feels like there was more there that happened, but we'll just call it, they moved on to the next village. I think that's funny. Uh, John was one of Jesus's uh, inner circle. There's often, uh, we refer to the disciples, the 12, and then Peter, James, and John, which were uh, Jesus's kind of closest inner circle. James and John uh, are part of that. Um, according to the church father Tertullian, John was banished to an island called Patmos where he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. Um, after being plunged into boiling oil in Rome in the Colosseum, but suffering no, uh, no problems from that, like no burns, no issues, nothing. He was boiled in oil uh, and, and survived, and the entire audience, according to Tertullian, were converted to Christianity upon witnessing this miracle. <laughs> yeah, like I'd sign up for whatever if I saw that, right? <laughs> Um, John outlived all the other apostles, was the only one of the original 12 to die of natural causes. Every single other one uh, were martyred. 
Later, John, in his old age, moved to Ephesus, established a school there, established kind of a a brotherhood, um, trained uh, Polycarp, who was one of the early church fathers, uh, trained Polycarp, who then trained Irenaeus. Uh, John also trained St. Ignatius. So uh, a lot of what was happening in the early church, the first two centuries, really had John's fingerprints all over it. Even though so much of early Christian theology was shaped by Paul, John, from kind of a pastoral and leadership development level had massive influence because Irenaeus and Ignatius and Polycarp, their, their kind of lines of development go really wide. So John had massive influence on the early church. Um, In addition to his gospel, wrote three epistles. They're called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, very creatively, um, and then uh, wrote Revelation as well. So that's John. Now, this gospel of John was written somewhere between 70 AD and 110 AD. And we know this. I'm going to tell you how we know this. Because this kind of stuff, I think, is really important for us to see in the text, right? We will often read uh, the scriptures, especially the gospel accounts, and just kind of try to get to the action parts or, or the parts that Jesus talked about. But three of the reasons why we can date John's gospel are, one, he mentions the Sadducees almost not at all, right? So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are prominent characters. They were uh, kind of Jewish sects S-E-C-T-S, uh, in, uh, in the first century. The Sadducees are mentioned almost not at all, which because uh, by the end of the first century, the Sadducees had largely died out. That was, not, that was no longer a prominent S-E-C-T-S. So, um, so he barely mentions them. He references Peter's death, which we know happened in the late 60s. Um, and then he calls what the uh, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call the Sea of Galilee. John calls the Sea of Tiberias, which is significant because that name change happened towards the end of the first century. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark wrote his gospel in like AD 45 or 50. He's calling it the Sea of Galilee because everyone around him is calling it the Sea of Galilee. So he's writing to people who know it as the Sea of Galilee. John, writing at the end of the first century, calls that same body of water the Sea of Tiberias because that's what everybody called it around it. Okay? So I, I only call that out because those are things that are happening in the text that unless we're paying attention, we just miss completely. Right? And the Bible is begging to be understood. It's begging us to try to inhabit the places and people and times, the culture in which it is taking place. And it's all there for us. We just have to read more carefully than we might normally do. So John wrote his gospel from Ephesus where John had established that school. And he really wrote it not to be a biography, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke not only had already been written, but were in circulation at that time. John would have absolutely known of those gospels. And and I, I say that, but it's important for us to remember, like there was no mass communication during this time, right? Like the communication was literally done like with actual scrolls on, I don't know, camelback or something, um, going from town to town, people walking these scrolls around. So the fact that these gospels were in circulation literally is like a manual transmission of these scrolls from person to person or from city to city. They'd be read aloud in some sort of congregation and then the, the person would move on to the next city, read it aloud and move on. There was not, they're not handing out pamphlets of the gospel of Mark or Luke or Matthew, right? So these were all in circulation. John, near the end of his life, having been arguably the closest 
human person to Jesus during his ministry life sits down to write an account of Jesus that's kind of a zooming out to go, okay, who was he? What was the impact of his life and ministry? Why does he matter? Why would we sit down to write kind of a memoir about who Jesus was? And that's, the, that's really the purpose of John's gospel. He confronts very specific, we'll talk about this later, but he confronts very specific kind of proto-Gnostic heresies. So Gnosticism, the really quick version of it is um, Gnosticism, essentially dualism that says that there is a spiritual world and there is a physical world. And by and large, the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good. And, uh, and so there's a lot that kind of flows out of Gnostic thought. And there were some early proto-Gnostic thoughts infiltrating the church that John's going to talk about. We'll, we'll deal with those as time goes on. So he's writing to confront specific heresies. Um, And then lastly, the book is organized around seven sign miracles, which we'll talk about here in a minute, um, and seven I am statements. Those are kind of the hinges for the book. Um, And then it's kind of peppered throughout with other teachings of Jesus. Now, most of all, this book was written so that you might be a believer in Jesus. That is John's aim, and this is what we see in John chapter 20. So why don't you turn there, if you haven't already, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We are coming on the heels of the resurrection. Literally, he has just finished the resurrection narrative. Jesus sees Thomas. Thomas doubts him. He forever gets that nickname. And then we see verse 30, which says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, I curated this story of Jesus. I added, you know, or I included some stories and I left out some stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke handled. They, all of them, I mean, there's no way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John compiled all of the stories all about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, right? Like probably they skipped the day they woke up and just walked somewhere and they're like, nah, we just, we probably just won't write that one down. But like the day Jesus walked on water, they're like, yeah, somebody get that, right? Like somebody write that one down, okay? So they, John is curating these stories specifically to show um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, there's two main things he says here, one in verse 30 and one in verse 31, that I want to focus on for uh, the rest of our time together. So first, in verse 30, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John, very famously, uses the word signs to describe Jesus' miracles. And and the book is organized, as I said, around seven of them, and they are these. In chapter two, Jesus will turn water into wine. It's actually my favorite of the miracles. Uh, He later heals an officer's son. He heals a lame man, number three. Number four, he feeds the 5,000. Number five, walks on water. Number six, he heals a man born blind. Seven uh, is the raising of Lazarus. And all seven of those point to and kind of arc towards what is considered the eighth and kind of culminating sign, which is his death and resurrection. Now, why is John using this word sign? What is the difference between a miracle and a sign? 
Well, a miracle is amazing, but a sign means something, right? A miracle is incredible. You see it, and you're like, wow, that's crazy. But a sign points beyond itself to something else, right? So it's the difference between a, a Jerry Bruckheimer movie and a Terrence Malick movie. One of them has just explosions for the sake of explosions. You just go, wow, that's a thing. And then another is this beautiful display of artistry that points to something beyond itself. It's the difference. A, a miracle is watching Thor and a, a sign is watching what is probably my favorite movie, though I can't admit it, Fight Club. Can officially recommend that movie as a pastor, but you should see it. Um, both of those movies have fight scenes. Both of those movies have explosions. Both of those movies have blonde guys with six packs. But one of them is you walk out of the theater going, wow, that was uh, a lot. And the other one, you come out, and especially as a Gen Xer, Fight Club just hits me right in the good spots. And I, I walk out of that going, wow, I got to think about some things. That is, that's, that's, that, there's a message in there. It's pointing me to something. It makes me want to go do something. It makes me want to blow up credit card companies or something, right? Like, that's the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. But it's like 30 years old at this point, so. John looks at the miracles of Jesus and goes, these aren't just explosions of power. This is not just Jesus saying, wow, look how big I am. Look what I can do. Look at how important I am. Look how powerful I am. Ooh and ah at me walking on the water, feeding 5,000, or making uh, the lame to walk and the blind to see. Like, they are pointing to something more. Signs guide and direct. They show you where you are and where you should be going. I was in, uh, I mentioned I was out of town this week. I was in Miami, and Miami is warm and sunny and better than Seattle in every way. And, uh, and I only barely came back because I have a family here. And, uh, and, and so anytime you're in a new place, you're in a new airport, you're just looking for signs to tell you where to go. And you're, so you're looking for the, the bathroom sign. And so you're looking for the stick figure of the guy who definitely does not look like he needs to go to the bathroom. And then you're looking for the baggage claim. It's just that picture of a bag, right? And you, it tells you where you are and where you're going, okay? Signs guide us. They direct us. They point beyond themselves. And Jesus's signs are always redemptive in nature and point beyond themselves to some truth about the kingdom of God. So the signs of Jesus always either demonstrate what the world ought to be like or what the world will be like in God's kingdom. Right, so Jesus comes upon a blind man and says, in effect, listen, you ought not to be blind. That's not what I created you for. I didn't create the world so that there would be blind people. I created the world so that you would see it and, and revel in the beauty of what I created and, and be able to sense the, the difference in the colors and the textures and the depth and all of what I created. And he gave us eyes not just to see it, but to appreciate it and to glory in it and to be moved by it. And so we look at blindness. Jesus looks at blindness and goes, that's not how it's supposed to be. And so when he heals the blind man from his blindness, he is restoring his creation back to his intention in it. 
Each and every one of his miracles are signs pointing to the way things ought to be. This is kind of why the wedding in Cana is actually like one of my favorite miracles. Jesus turns water into wine. Now, does that mean that all water was supposed to be wine and that in the kingdom of God in heaven, all water will be wine? No, probably not, but you know, you never know. There's things to be prayed for. Um, But what it means is that we are meant to celebrate and the party shouldn't end just because the wine ran out. And in the kingdom of God, we will celebrate and have joy and that will be forever and ever and ever. And that Jesus has the power to bring about joy in any and every situation. So Jesus's miracles are not just these demonstrations of his power meant to kind of terminate on themselves, but they point beyond themselves to some greater truth about who God is or what God's doing. Now, this pointing beyond oneself nature of signs pulls Jesus out of the mold of teacher or philosopher and into something more. And John tells us what more? That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's what he says in verse 31. He says, but these stories, these signs were written down so that you might believe, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I want you to hear this. This is John who spent three years of his life walking with Jesus on a daily basis and then the rest of his life pouring himself out for this mission, pouring himself out for the sake of Jesus, that he in this text is imploring us. He's begging us. He wrote a whole book to convince us to be believers in Jesus because of the life that he offers and implicitly, the life that John had experienced with him. So he makes three claims. He says, one, Jesus is the Christ. Now, the Christ simply means the anointed one. But in Jewish theology and Jewish uh, history, that meant the Messiah and meant the Savior. It's the one that they'd been waiting for for generations. And now John, to his Jewish audience, says, I know who he is, the one we've been waiting for literally since Moses and Abraham is now here, and his name was Jesus. Second, he says that Jesus was the son of the living God. Now to his um, kind of Greek audience there at the end of the first century, he is saying, listen, Jesus wasn't just another one of our teachers. He wasn't just another great philosopher. He wasn't even just like the best teacher and the best philosopher. He was actually God himself, divine in every way. And that because of those two things, that he's the savior and he is God, that by believing in him, you can have life. Now, notice what John is doing here. Because I think this is actually really important for us to get, not only for us to understand the text, but more importantly, I think this is extremely relevant to our day today. This passage comes on the heels of the resurrection right? The ultimate sign of the saving power, the messiahship, the Christship of Jesus, and his divinity, the power that he has over Satan, sin, and death. So we see here in this moment that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God, divine himself, able to overcome Satan, sin, and death. The ultimate sign of who Jesus is. Now, John says, pay attention to Jesus, 
See Jesus, don't miss Jesus. He is the Savior and he is the Son of God. Now, see the combination of those two things held together, Savior and God, rescue and victory, love and power, believe in him. John puts Jesus, the person of Jesus, at the center of his argument. Now, what could that mean? Well, Tim Keller in The Reason for God says it this way. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So Keller is building off of John's argument here, right? Instead of assessing Jesus through the lens of what he taught, consider what he taught through the lens of who he is. Okay? Often we will start with the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Christianity, and judge Jesus based upon what we think about his teachings. Rather, John goes, no, 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 start with Jesus. Because if Jesus was both Savior and God, as I said, rescuer and victorious one, lover and conqueror, if this is who Jesus is, then whatever he says is true. Start there. If he truly defeated Satan, sin, and death, if he is truly the Messiah, the chosen one, then how could you look him full in the face? If he is truly the word who became flesh, if he is truly the one through whom all things were made, should we not listen to whatever he says? Right, so um, last Sunday night, I went home and watched some highlights of the Golden Globes uh, and their acceptance speeches and all of this, and it's always uh, kind of an up and down thing for me, um, which ones I like and which ones I don't. And one of the interesting things about it was uh, two, two of the recipients, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Michelle Williams, used their platform to kind of talk about an issue that was near and dear to their hearts and uh, imploring people to uh, be conscientious about the environment or for women's rights or whatever the case may be with them. And I thought about this and I thought, listen, what they're doing is saying, I won. I am a great actor or actress, and that victory ought to give me credibility to then speak into this issue. They're, they're, they're kind of laying the burden of the truthfulness or the worthiness of what they're saying at the feet of their victory. Okay? And they have real influence so that somebody somewhere listened to an almost incomprehensible Joaquin Phoenix um, talk about the environment and, and went, yeah, we need to stop eating meat, right? Because that was kind of his thing. Jesus, and John here, says about Jesus, goes, listen, I, I'm the savior of the world. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. And I am God incarnate. All things that have been made were made through me. So start there. And if that's true, then you ought to listen to what I say. If it's not true, you should ignore me completely. Instead, what we often do is take what Jesus said or the teachings of Christianity and judge that as if we were the kinds of people who ought to be judging what's right or wrong. Like, what do I know about what is right in the universe? 
What do I know ultimately about what is true and good and what is evil and wrong? What, how, how would I be able to judge that? I'm 41 years old. I've lived mostly in the Western United States. I have five young children. I've never been to Africa. I've been to like Mexico. I've been to like one place in Europe. I don't have like this, I, I have no PhD. I have no, I got nothing. I'm like a very small person. What would make me think that I have what it takes to judge what is objectively right and wrong in the universe. So John goes, start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Instead of looking at what Jesus taught when Christianity teaches and going, mm, I don't agree with it, I don't think that's right, therefore Jesus is wrong, go, mm, I'm not sure I have the right to make a judgment about any of that stuff. I'm going to start with Jesus. And if Jesus is who he says he was, and there's a bit of evidence to say it's true, then maybe we ought to take seriously everything he said. See, this book, the Gospel of John, is meant to be a challenge to us. First and foremost, it's meant to be a challenge to us to assess what signs we are paying attention to. Because signs aren't just Jesus' world, right? Like there's all kinds of signs and signals that communicate value, communicate ends, communicate purpose, communicate what we should be doing and not doing. All the, the, the winners on stage at the Golden Globes are, are a sign of what matters and what we should listen to. These are all signs. Everything around us is signs telling us what we should do and what we should be and what we should enjoy. It all is. And so we ought to take some stock in our life and go, what signs am I paying attention to? What am I believing and why? Eugene Peterson, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, which is gold, says this. He says, a person has to be so thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. And I think that's true, that we have to come to some end of ourselves. We have to exhaust all the possibilities, whatever our chosen sign is, whatever our chosen end is, whatever our chosen means to establish justice and equity and life and prosperity and tranquility and peace and all the things that we desire in our world. We have to see their ultimate failure sometimes before we can shift our gaze to some other thing, namely Jesus. So the first challenge for us during this series is for us to take seriously and assess, like, what is it that I'm actually paying attention to? Who am I listening to? The second challenge is to deal with the signs of Jesus and to ask ourselves, what sign would we have to see? What would we have to hear? What would Jesus have to do or say in order to really get our attention? If some of these following things that I'm about to read to you are true and the majority of relevant scholars believe these things, I have uh, eight things here that uh, history, history scholars and sociological scholars, in fact, um, some 1,400 scholarly articles are represented here in these facts, that the majority of scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, agree to these eight individual things 
And we are left with this challenge to, to assess, like, what do we do with those things? So here's where we begin. One, just about everybody believes Jesus was a real person. That's not really debated, that Jesus was a real person. Two, that Jesus was, in fact, crucified. Three, that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. There are records in the Sanhedrin about that. Number four, that the tomb was empty on the third day. Listen to this. 75% of 1,400 scholarly articles, 75% of them across the faith spectrum, from complete atheists to some Christians, 75% of those 1,400 scholarly articles written on the subject of the empty tomb agree, yeah, the tomb was empty on the third day. That doesn't mean they know how. It doesn't mean they know the way, the way that all took place. But 75% go, yeah, I mean, there's evidence. The guard, the Roman guards, the fact that there were women testifying to it. It's in the scriptures. It's had this massive impact. Yeah, 75% say it was definitely empty. Number five, that the disciples, Paul, and over 500 witnesses saw what at least they believed to be a resurrected Jesus. Most scholars believe that. Number six, that virtually all the apostles and leaders were martyred. Blaise Pascal says this about that idea, and he says it starkly. says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. That there's a certain level of credibility that comes with that. Number seven, that Christianity boomed in the intervening years despite legal, social, and theological ramifications. Instead of it dying with its founder as every other messianic community had up to that point, Jesus dies, is assumed raised from the dead by his disciples, and Christianity flourishes. In fact, number eight is also true. Most people's influence peaks before their death and recedes slowly from there, but Jesus is the opposite. In the course of the first 300 years after Jesus' death, we go from a dozen scared followers in an upper room to the official religion of the Roman Empire. A thousand years after his birth, Christianity has laid the foundation for most of Western civilization. And 2,000 years later, Jesus has more followers today in more parts of the world than ever. Now, most scholars across the spectrum would agree with those eight things, and yet most scholars are not Christians. So the challenge that will be laid at our feet during this series is to say, hey, if these things are true, what is the story that you are weaving together to make sense of those eight things, if not the gospel story? How do you weave together a story that takes all eight of those things into account in their truthfulness and then says, yeah, but in the end, no to Christianity? You may get there, but the challenge of the Gospel of John is to do so. We are looking for signs to tell us where we are and where we should go. We see the world around us and the signs all point in different ways. None of it makes sense. It's all deluded and an illogical mess. The signs of Jesus all point in the same direction. They have always told you who you are and where you should be going. They all point to the source of life, to the point of life. Jesus offers us life, his track record, his credibility, and all of that says, now, will you listen to me? Will you let me offer you life? 
This is the challenge of the gospel of John. It is the offer of the gospel of John, the uniqueness of the challenge of Christianity. The challenge of every other faith and philosophy is here's the mountain, go climb it. That's the challenge. Are you disciplined enough? Are you morally upright enough to get to the top of the mountain? The challenge of the gospel is Jesus walked to the top of the mountain. Will you let that count for you? Will you believe that what he did matters for you? The challenge of the gospel is almost a pure offer laid down for you. Jesus goes, if you will just believe me, just believe me, you will have life. Believe that I am who I said I was, and therefore what I say to you is truth, and you will have life. I want to close tonight by reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And I read this one a couple weeks back and it really stuck with me. It felt really appropriate uh, for tonight. So I want to read this as we close. If you'll bow your heads with me. My Father, enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips. Supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. There, grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son. Made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. There, the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There, thy infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There, infinite punishment was due and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, athirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclothed brightness, expired that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not thine own son, that thou mightest spare me, All this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight. As I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Amen. All right, we're going to take a couple questions here. Uh, The first says, knowing that John was written so late, 
doesn't that cause it to be less trustworthy of a text? Um, it's a good question. Um, I'd say a couple things. One is um, the presupposition here is that um, this is not purely a, uh, a, a human endeavor, right? So John 14, 26, I believe, um, John says that uh, Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would kind of carry them along and specifically bring to remembrance the things that he had taught. So um, there is baked into the premise of the uh, kind of the, the nature of God's word being God's word and not simply a human account of things that happened that kind of uh, assume a level of uh, spirit direction and div divine kind of source uh, behind it. So I would say that's one. We rely on the spirit to bring the authority and the trustworthiness. The second is this. Um, even absent that, if John's endeavor had been to write a kind of blow-by-blow -blow chronological account of all the things that happened in the proper order, we might say, yeah, I could see how distance from the event would muddy the waters of our memory. But again, that's not John's intention, that he's taking a step back and going, okay, let's remember what were like the seven most important moments that we had with Jesus and what were the, these seven I am statements that we had that we heard Jesus teach and these kind of core teachings. So it's curated for some of the most important and most remarkable moments in Jesus's life. Um, so I would say that, like there's less of, uh, less of a need for detail in terms of chronology because of the way he approached it. The third thing, and, and I feel like is often missed, it's a very kind of practical, obvious thing if you think about it is, Oftentimes, for whatever reason, we think of the gospel writers, in John's case, uh, you know, maybe 50 years after Jesus died, writing things down from memory for the first time. Well, why would that be the case? Like, there is no reason to think that the first time John put pen to paper to talk, to think about, and to remember the things Jesus was saying was when he sat down to write the gospel, right? Like, how many of you journal on a daily or weekly basis? Most of you, okay, like three of you, uh, but like <laughs> if you happen to be spending three years with the savior of the universe and God incarnate, might you write some things down? Like, I should remember that. You write that one down. I always do it right-handed. I'm left-handed. Uh, I, I would. I don't know about you. So I don't think there's any reason for us to think that it was not until 60 years later that John first wrote those things down and had to really rack his brains to remember things. I think it's extremely likely uh, in a culture that was, you know, largely, you know, penned to papyrus or whatever, uh, that they're writing things down. And in a culture like theirs that was more of an oral culture than ours, um, they had the ability to remember things uh, that, that we don't have. They memorized things in ways that, that we do not anymore. So uh, those are some answers to that question. Second, and this is a really important question and one I wanted to address. Um, says this, when you mentioned that Jesus was, quote, restoring the order of creation to how things should be through healing the blind man of his blindness, is this saying that blindness or other physical disability is something God did not want? If he did not want this, why was this man born blind? Further, how can we say that people born with disability are not right with his order for creation? Okay, a couple things on this. 
And, and this is an interesting issue uh, that is a very present issue because a word exists today that literally did not exist when your parents were your age, which is ableism or ableist, right? And ableism as an idea is that um, those who are not uh, physically limited in more serious ways have a kind of default or de facto understanding of how the world and how the body ought to be. And there's like an assumption that, that the ability to function in ways that most people function is the norm and anything else is what we call a disability, right? And so this is a, a new concept in our culture that that perspective is now morally wrong, okay? So a couple thoughts on this, right? So one is um, the, the, your questions and whomever you are, uh, these are really important, good questions, but some of them kind of contradict each other in some ways that ought to be at least noticed by us, right? So one, um, if we're saying a physical disability is something God did not want, if he did not want this, why was the man born blind? Now, baked into that is the implicit assumption that God would not create something that he did not want, which then means that we would not be able to look at anything in the world that God created and call it not right. Right? So if we just kind of blow up that idea in this one specific instance of if God did not want something blind, why did he make something blind? We would have to apply that logic to literally everything and therefore not be able to say anything is not as God intended it. And I don't think any of us would look around the world and say, no, everything is as God intended it, okay? So there's kind of a logical fallacy built into that, or a logical problem built into that question. Second question is this. Um, uh, if you don't want this, why is this man born blind? Further, how can we say that people born with disability are not right with this order of creation? Okay, first, because Jesus heals him. That's our first clue, right? That Jesus comes upon this man who is born blind and another man who is born lame, and by that, mean, that means his legs don't work, not that he's uncool. Um, but that God sees this man who is uh, blind and says, that's not as it should be, so I will heal you. So it should be a clue to us that Jesus thinks this is not right. This is not how I created it to be. In the very fact that he healed him. God did not heal. Jesus did not heal people who were not sick. Okay? So there's, that's like a pretty clear reason why we can say that. But let me zoom out and make a broader comment on this issue because I think it is a fundamental failure of the logic of our culture. And one of the reasons why I said in my conclusion that when we look to culture and to the world for signs and signals to tell us what matters, they're all pointing in different directions all the time. One of the things that our culture does not have the ability or willingness to do is, one, call anything broken. We just won't do it unless there's some sort of consensus that we all kind of for now agree that this is broken, but tomorrow we could all change our minds, right? We've seen this. Even in your young lifetimes, our young lifetimes, we have seen things that we used to as a consensus say, that's not okay, that now we go, that's okay. Why? Why? Not because there was some significant public debate, not because new evidence was introduced into the scientific community, not because of, like, why? 
So that happens. And one of the things that we are also unable to do as a culture is to, at the very same time, this is something Jesus did all the time, and that Christianity has the theological resources to do that our world cannot do, which is to say, you are, at the very same moment, created in the image of God, worthy of respect and honor and dignity and love and all of the things and at the very same moment, deeply flawed and broken and disabled in a million different ways, and loved and disabled and loved and broken and an image bearer of God and sinful, all at the very same time. We can't do that. Culture can't do that. It's all affirmed or it's all disgusting. It's all good or you are canceled. It's all approved of or we do away with you. Those are the, it's a binary. And Jesus in Christianity is able to go, no, there is an inherent value in your humanity and what you do, what you think, what you believe, how you act, whatever you say, whatever the thing is, is deeply broken. And that does not change the fact that you are forever and always an image bearer of God and broken and an image bearer and broken and, 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 all at the same time. Culture can't do that. The world refuses to do that for whatever reason. So as Christians, we can also look at someone who is physically disabled, and in reality, we all are in some way. I mean, come on. Uh, but we can look at people and go, listen, you are an image bearer of God, inherent dignity, and deeply broken in really significant ways, and... God shows his glory through your brokenness. God demonstrates his glory through our brokenness. So our sin and our brokenness, and even, you know, the, the story of the man born blind, this guy didn't do anything wrong. It's not his sin that he's culpable for that made him blind. It's simply sinfulness in the world that creates things that aren't as God intended to be. And in the midst of that, God does amazing things, not in spite of our disabilities, but through them magnifying his glory and power and goodness. So God, in this, I talked about this in reference to a question in the morning, that, that God took death. This is the ultimate sense of this, this, this kind of truth, right? God took death and didn't just defeat it, but he actually turned death into a tool for life. So that now, Jesus dying and being resurrected on the third day created a paradigm for us so that now death for us, and death in a million different literal and metaphorical ways, as simple as repentance, death of the will, death of, the, of pride, actually results in life. So what Satan intended to be our destruction, Jesus made into our redemption. What Satan intends to destroy us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, Jesus uses to be our redemption. Jesus uses our brokenness to make us aware of our fragility. Jesus uses our weakness to make us aware of our need for him. This is like the constant mantra of Jesus. It's why he says that it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because rich people are blind to their need. When we have disability, we are aware of our need and it draws us closer to Christ. 
So this is the, the holistic vision for, of Christianity for the brokenness of our world. And it's what separates us. We, we can, can have a, a comprehensive vision of this stuff that makes sense together that the, many of those in our world simply cannot or refuse to do so for whatever reasons they may have. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.